Welcome once again to the Magnum Rewatch Podcast. My name is Graham. And I'm Kathleen. We are from Loading Ready Run, where we do other funny stuff. But this week, we are here to tell you about episode 10 of Magnum P.I., Lest We Forget. Ooh, that sounds very cool. Um, yeah, this is a, this is, this is a good one. I'm, I'm excited for this episode. I guess we should mention that we've been sort of teasing that there's going to be a, a title theme music change, and then when that happens, that we would talk about theme music composer Mike Post. Mm-hmm. And apparently in the original airings, that did happen by this episode, but not on the DVD that we have. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll delay it until it actually happens for us. That might not happen until the second season, though. Yeah, but if you're watching... If you happen to be watching along, which again, we've always said is not a requirement, you either have the DVDs or you're watching on Netflix, which is from the DVDs, so this theme will be the same theme that you're seeing, hearing, Mm. enjoying, whatever. Well, we'll keep you posted. Anyway, we have plenty to talk about this episode regardless. We start the episode at night on a conspicuously well-lit beach. Yeah, well... I mean, you know, it's, it's nighttime on television, it's always like that. Boovie magic, made for TV magic. Yeah. A young couple come uh, traipsing along. I think it's traipsing. Mm-hmm. They're definitely having some, what I would call, sexy times. And I have to say, I can get behind this couple because the noises the lady is making are more like, like these are the kind of squawks I would make if I was having cute, sexy times. I believe they call it necking what's going on here. Yeah, they lay down on a towel and they totally make out. So hot. uh, We learn that their names are Diane and Bobby. Sexy times are getting a little heavy, and then Diane remembers she left the stove on or something. She just completely loses interest and sits up. And Bobby's like, what? Come on. Come on. What's what's going on? What's wrong? And she's like, not without a condom. No, that doesn't happen. No, it's uh, she's she's concerned. There's a lot of different things to be concerned about. She has to get back to the club or Jesse will be upset. But mainly she's worried about Bobby. And he's like, don't worry. I promise. Well, actually, he says, nothing's going to go wrong. I won't let it. The shit's about to hit the fan. Yeah. This this scene goes on too long, I think. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to, they're trying to establish character here. Yeah. But there's a lot of back and forth between these two characters and sort of personal concerns and, uh, what is it that she says? Uh, she says, I have to go back to the club or Jesse will get suspicious and you wouldn't want her to get suspicious on the night I run away to elope, would you? And he's like, okay, I guess so. And so, you know, you... you or you could just, like, never show up again. Yeah, I don't that get it. That just seems way yeah, easier. So you find out that they're very much in love and that she works somewhere. There's reference made to no one else is going to touch me again, but you, and you're like, wait a minute, what kind of club is this? She is a, she is a prostitute. Yeah. She is lady of the evening. They're like, okay, fine. We'll, you know, you go to back to the club. I'll meet you later. We'll get in the car and we'll take off and we'll go elope. And they, they go back and they get in the car, old looking car, mm-hmm. weirdly old, like a, almost like a jalopy. Yeah. But you notice that like the, the hairstyle is a little like old fashioned and her bathing suit's a little old fashioned cause it's like a, a full one piece and it comes down pretty low over the top of her thighs. And then they turn on the radio and they're sort of like, well, it's a great evening here. Only eight days till Christmas. As the camera zooms in on the registration on the license plate where you, where you realize that it is 1941. This is not the first moment I had realized it was 1941. I think this is to hammer it home for the slower viewers. 
I don't know if that's fair. Well, okay, I wouldn't have guessed it was exactly 1941, but it's definitely a different time period. Okay. It's not the swing in 80s. Fair enough. The reason the number of days before Christmas is relevant, and I, I realize now that I heard him say eight, but he must have been saying 18, because I and I just wrote it down wrong, uh, is that uh, on December 7th, 1941, there was the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. Just a small thing. By the Japanese on the American military base at Pearl Harbor. Not actually a small thing. Thousands of people died. Yeah. Terrible. And, and it's mentioned that he's in the Navy. Um, but we'll find out more about that later, because then it transitions to what is clearly the 1980s. Yeah, you can tell because suddenly bikini tops are in style and there's surfboards everywhere. Even though surfing had been invented in the 1940s, surfing has a long history. Uh, it can be traced back to the Polynesians and uh, Captain Cook and his men observing them in the 1700s. But uh, a lot of people credit a guy named George Freeth with inventing surfing. In fact, he is credited as the father of modern surfing, and he lived between 1883 and 1919. He's half American, half Irish, but all badass. Sadly, died in the flu pandemic of 1919. That sucks. But he invented surfing. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, this was a skimboard. Though. I mean, so, so someone was carrying a surfboard, but there was like a skimboard in the foreground. Those probably weren't around. I mean, certainly fiberglass was less relevant in the 40s, I assume. Yeah, I didn't look up whether fiberglass was invented in the 40s. I wasn't expecting you to. This scene is also amusing because as Magnum is driving up in the Ferrari, an extra clearly, like, gets lost and walks in front of the Ferrari and Magnum has to, like, pause for a second, drive around her. It's just kind of funny. And then, And they were like, yeah, that takes fine. Sure, we're not doing this again. We've already done like 30 beach takes. Yeah, why not? So Magnum is there to meet someone. He actually, he goes up and uh, introduces himself and uh, says, you know, it's, he doesn't get to meet many Supreme Court justices, to which the gentleman, uh, Robert Kane, responds, no, no, I'm, I'm not the Supreme Court justice yet. I have uh, merely been nominated. I have been nominated. And before he accepts the nomination... He has to actually get Magnum to do something. And Robin Masters suggested Magnum, because apparently Robin Masters knows everybody. And uh, he took the liberty of pulling Magnum's naval records. Which Magnum is um, annoyed at, yeah. peeved, pissed. He's like, if you want irate. my help, pulling my 201 file is not a great way to say hello. So obviously you lied to Robin Masters about whatever help you needed, because there's no way that he would recommend you to me for something that you think needs you to pull my records. He's very, very quick on that. I'm, I realize that was a durbled sentence, but... I feel like Magnum's back on the fast uptake after last episode of him being unusually stupid. Yeah. So Robert Kane says, no, no, I need you to find a missing woman. And Magnum's like, okay, that's a little outside my wheelhouse, but sure, when did she go missing? And Kane says, 40 years ago. Also, you have 24 hours. Magnum says, well, as long as it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what? Is this some sort of joke? G like, goodbye. And Magnum is incredulous. Let's put it that way. He asks for a little more information, and Kane says, well, she used to work uh, on Hotel Street. And Magnum's like, oh, so okay, so she was a prostitute or what? And he's like, yeah, she was also my wife. Magnum is like, okay? Wait, what? <laughs> Kane says that he received a telegram the other day, saying, congratulations on the nomination, Bobby, signed Diane. And he says that's the only Diane he's ever known and the only person who calls him Bobby. And he thought that she went missing 40 years ago. And it's not about 
blackmail because she would never do that. But he wants to make sure that everything is cool before he accepts this Supreme Court nomination. He's got to make sure that his record is good because he's a judge, mm-hmm. you know. And suddenly this woman who he knew 40 years ago and thought was missing out of the blue sends him a telegram now that he's been nominated for the Supreme Court. And he's like, this is really weird. Mm-hmm. And he says that, you know, she wouldn't blackmail me. Diane would never do that. But I can't be sure, I guess. Well, he can't be sure this is Diane, right? He wants to be sure that if this is Diane trying to get a hold of him, that he can talk to her. Or if it's somebody trying to take him for a ride. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good time to point out that during this scene, you see the opening titles come on screen, including this week's guest stars. And there's a couple last names that get repeated because this episode does something really, really cool because you have Bobby and Diane in 1941 and you have Robert and Diane in 1981 played by respectively a mother, daughter and father, son acting team. Yeah, it's really neat. I will tell you about them right now, if you're interested. And I if, am. And even if you're not interested, I don't know why I... If you're not interested, you probably that. shouldn't be listening to this podcast. So, Robert Kane, the senior, is played by Jose Ferrer, who, uh, among other things, won an Academy Award as the first Puerto Rican and first Hispanic actor to win an Academy Award in 1950 for playing Cyrano de Bergerac in the movie of the same name. Oh. He had a long and full career, nominated Best Supporting for playing Charles Seventh in Joan of Arc... Uh, nominated Best Actor for playing Toulouse-Lautrec in Moulin Rouge, uh, not the Baz Luhrmann Moulin Rouge, the one in 1952. Nominated BAFTA Best Foreign Actor for playing Lieutenant Barney Greenwald in The Cane Mutiny. He was in Ship of Fools. He was in Voyage of the Damned. He was in Crash, again, the 1977 version, not the recent one. He's the been... recent one's from like 2004, though, so it's not that recent. Yeah, that's true, but he sadly died in 1992. Uh, so his... what about his son? Well, his son, Miguel Ferrer, who played the younger Bobby from 1941. And immediately triggered my, I know that actor. Yes, and you would probably remember him, knowing you, Yes, you'd probably remember him from one of two places. Okay. FBI forensic pathologist Albert Rosenfeld in Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. Uh, or Bob Morton from RoboCop. Morton! Designer of RoboCop. Uh, that's definitely where I know him from, is RoboCop. And if you look at Miguel Ferrer now, he looks now like Jose Ferrer does in this episode of Magnum. That's amazing. <laughs> he, they look very, very similar. Miguel Ferrer has been in many movies over the years. A lot of voice work as well. Uh, and is still doing stuff. In fact, he was most recently Vice President Rodriguez in Iron Man 3. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's like a long-term character actor. Perhaps he's never reached the heights and acclaim that his father did, but he is a busy guy. He's one of those guys you recognize, you know? Diane is played by Mother June and daughter Anne Lockhart. And as soon as June Lockhart came on the screen, I thought this was really interesting, that you were like, is that Mrs. Brady? And it, it's not, and I don't, I, I don't think she looks that much like Florence Henderson, but the reason I thought that was interesting is because she is best known for playing two long-term TV mothers. Ah, so I just have a motherly instinct to her. Mm-hmm. She played Maureen Robinson in Lost in Space. Oh! In 84 episodes of Lost in Space, and she was also Ruth Martin in 200 episodes of Lassie. I have never seen a single episode of Lassie. Well, she was in 
Every all of episode them? of Lassie, basically, from 1959 to 64, she was in all the Lassie. Uh, she's also uh, two-time nominated for an Emmy Award and won a Tony. Uh, she was also in the 1998 Lost in Space remake movie uh, in a cameo as a principal. I see. She was also in Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Well, they can't all be winners. I mean, she had a lot of B-movie roles. Actually, interestingly, she was in Troll. Oh. You know, like the, the, yeah, yeah. the B-movie horror movie in 1986 mm-hmm. uh, with Anne Lockhart, again, playing her, playing her younger self. Mm. I mean, how many mother-daughter actor teams are there out there where they look pretty close? Yeah. And I'm looking at this old picture of June Lockhart. She looks like her daughter. Her daughter looks like her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was also notably her other big TV role, Dr. Janet Craig in the final two seasons of Petticoat Junction. That classic. I don't know. I've never seen an episode of that either. Uh, it it kind of was a classic of its day. Well, that's well before either of our times. Unsurprisingly, Anne Lockhart's uh, first roles were actually a couple guest appearances on episodes of Lassie, presumably as a very young girl. Uh, as a wee baby. Named Little Girl or Anne or Annie. And a lot of roles sort of through the 70s and 80s. More and more these days, she's finding work in voice acting and apparently uncredited policewomen. She has played background role police women in Walker, Texas Ranger, Jag, Diagnosis Murder, Dragnet, The West Wing. Oh, I'm sorry. In that one, she's White House staff uncredited, NCIS, Law and Order, Law and Order Criminal Intent, and apparently 63 episodes of Chicago Fire as Dispatcher uncredited. Huh. It's a little curious. Yeah. What kind of voice work has she done? Unfortunately, it's generally stuff of similar note. Like, she's been in stuff like uh, Bolt and Tangled and some anime dubs, but largely as additional voices. There you go. The the father-son, mother-daughter teams that make the uh, sort of temporal flashbacks in this episode uh, so believable. So Magnum decides he'll take the case to get us back on track. He decides he'll take the case. So he has a picture of Diane in the 40s and takes it over to the King Kamehameha Club to do some thinking. He's only got 24 hours to find this woman, so obviously it's time for a beer. Well, he wants to talk to Rick, too. But right now he's sitting around killing time drinking a beer. Moki, the bartender, takes a look at the picture and says that is a fine-looking wahini. I don't know what wahini means. I'm assuming white lady. It's just a sort of colloquial Hawaiian word for woman. Oh, Rick shows up. He shows Rick the picture. Says, "Have you seen this girl? She used to work on Hotel Street." And he says, "That doesn't. She doesn't look familiar. What club?" And he says the name of the club. And Rick's like, "I haven't even heard of that thing." And he's like, "Well, you know, it wasn't the '40s." And Rick gives him his withering look. But he did know something because we then cut to a scene where Magnum's going to look for information. Yeah, from a lead that Rick gave him. It's a, a guy who used to work at those clubs back in the 1940s, but now he's old. But he's not too old to go swimming for 10 miles, much to the consternation of his granddaughter. Who was wearing some high-waisted shorts. As was tradition of the 1980s. This guy, the old guy, reminds me of my dad. This is the kind of thing my dad would do. And waiting anxiously on the shore is the kind of thing I would do. And it's not just that he's swimming for 10 miles. he's, He's swimming for 10 miles in, like, really oppressive surf. And then he comes out and is like, oh, I don't know why you were so worried. I'm going to go back in again. And his his granddaughter's like, so yeah, it, it's it's very similar to your relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. So this guy's name is Maku, and he used to work at the club, I believe, as a bouncer or bartender or something. Magnum says, "Well, I'm looking for a woman." 
Maku says, really? I can't believe that you need to come here to look for women, but the best one I got just went inside. Oh, snap. <laughs> Referring to his granddaughter, who, to be fair, super hot. Oh, yeah. And that's because Elizabeth Lindsay, two years prior to taking this role as Kiki, was Miss Hawaii 1978. I mean, she's really pretty. Mm. Magnum shows him the picture of Diane, and he has the mo- <laughs> the the least subtle sorry i'm laughing just thinking about it the least subtle eye darting try not to look suspicious movements i've seen yeah this guy's selling it to the cheap seats yeah he's only had two other acting roles listed on imdb uh boat owner and he was hawaiian man in one episode of baywatch i mean he does get a name here that's true at least he's maku so kiki comes back with the beers that Maku sent her in for. And Maku's like, well, sorry I couldn't help you, but here you go, take the beer for the road. And maybe give my granddaughter a ride into town. And I'm like, excuse me? And he says, I'll talk to some of my friends who worked there at the time and see if they know anything, and then maybe you can come back later. Yeah. Magnum says, okay, that sounds great. Because he doesn't believe Maku either. And then we then cut to a chauffeur. He looks like Q, actually, from the Bond movies. Like, he's got, his eyebrows are out of control, and he's this, like, just old... British looking white dude he's not actually British but he, he looks like Desmond Llewellyn mm-hmm. and the the phone in his carport rings and he goes over and he's like hello this is this is Mueller what's up is it who interesting I'll let her know and then he sort of looks over and you hear someone talking to a Mrs. Polly he lets her into the car and says that someone was asking Maku about Diane Westmore oh my goodness and Mrs. Polly Looks like she's just seen a ghost. Also, importantly, she also looks like Diane Westmore. Just 40 years older. Yeah. We cut to Magnum swimming. He's decided to go for a swim. As he says in his narration, he's doing it to sort of clear his head, do some thinking. And also, he doesn't really believe that Maku is really going to check his check with some friends and get back to him. So he doesn't bother going back. I mean, that's fair. When somebody is so obviously lying to you, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Magnum's a busy guy. He's got things to do which is helped by Zeus, who appears on the concrete sort of embankment thing. In in the tidal pool, yeah. In the middle of the tidal pool with his towel. Magnum is immediately suspicious. And then he gets to the shore, and there's Apollo with his flip-flops. Both the dogs look very confused. Magnum is also confused. Magnum's, Magnum's way more confused, but the dogs look uncomfortable being nice to him. Magnum looks up at the house, and there's Higgins, and he's smiling and looking pleased with himself. So they go inside, and Magnum's like, I don't know what you want, Higgins, but you're not getting it. I'm not giving you the Ferrari. I'm not moving out of the guest house. And Higgins is like, oh, no, I, I, I daren't dream of it. Here, let me get you a drink. And gets Magnum a beer from the fridge and asks Magnum, are you the T Magnum that was on the American bridge team at Sao Paulo in 72 or whatever? Magnum's like, what What do you want? And he's like, well, we need a fourth for our bridge team tomorrow. And he's like, why is this so desperate? Did your fourth die? Higgins says, yes. <laughs> Magnum's like, oh, geez, I'm actually really sorry about that. Bridge is a serious thing. Oh, I, I tried to look up bridge so I could understand it and explain it briefly. I cannot. I remember my dad telling me that when he was in university, which I guess would have been around this time, like, people were cutting classes. At university, people were cutting classes to play bridge. Bridge was a deal. Bridge was a craze. Yeah. Sweeping the nation. Yeah. And let me tell you, Higgins is into it. So he says that he wants Magnum to join their join their foursome for bridge. 
And Magnum says, well, I'll try. And Higgins is like, well, how, what can I do to help you out with your, with your case? And he's like, oh, you can pull some newspaper clippings on Robert Kane, I guess. Great, I'll have them done in the hour. And he gets newspaper clippings, gasses up the Ferrari, packs Magnum a lunch. This is all very strange. But I'm happy to report that Magnum takes all this in stride and decides, you know what, I'm going to get while the getting's good. And goes right along with it. And has, to note, his third beer for the day. Yeah. Magnum goes to pick up Robert Kane. Uh, he says that he's found something out. Gets Kane in the car. Really nice in-car shots, like really nice shots from the hood of the car. Takes him to Hotel Street and says, I'm uh, bringing you here to the last place that you saw Diane. See if that jogs your memory. And he's like, no, I told you where the last place I saw, Dan- saw Diane was. It was on the dock. Because as far as he knows, she got on a boat from Hawaii to San Diego, and then Pearl Harbor happened, and he never found her. She just disappeared. But this telegram from her came from Honolulu. Mm-hmm. So she's back in Hawaii. But they drive past where this, I guess, brothel used yeah. to be. And he has a flashback of him driving up around back of the brothel and Diane sneaking out with her suitcase. And they're getting ready to leave when the madam emerges. Jessie, who's who a mean lady. Jessie don't give a crap. Jessie's a bee, but yeah. she's a bee in it for herself. She's like, well, Diane's still got a couple uh, years left on her contract, but, you know. I could let you buy out her contract. It's probably worth 20000 But you know what? I like you. 15000 How about that? And he's like, I'm not going to let you do this. He's like, oh, you don't have 15000 Okay. Well, then you can come and visit her as much as you want for a much lower rate. Bobby is kind of macho and says, no, get in the car. I'll protect you, Diane. So Jesse sends out her, hun- her hench dude, whose name is... Dutch. Dutch? Dutch Mueller. Dutch Mueller. Hench dude for hire. Dutch. And they have the least graceful knife fight I've ever seen committed to screen. Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of buy that Bobby is not super great at fighting with a knife, but it's a lot of them just, like, holding the knife out in front of them and being like, eh, 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 and, like, sort of stabbing in the general area of each other's groins, which is probably how I would be in a knife fight. So once again, I'm sympathetic. What I like is that Dutch immediately produces the knife, and one of Bobby's sailor friends, who is obviously visiting the brothel, is like, Bobby, and chucks him a knife, too. Yeah. I like that. It's like, thank you, sailor friend. I mean, they don't intervene in any way. No. But they are making sure it's a fight. fair he's gonna, fight. He's going to even fight. it up, yeah. Yeah. It ends up with Dutch tripping or falling in some manner. Or kind of like lunging on Bobby. Yeah, on top of Bobby. Misses him, but falls on Bobby's knife. Yeah, he gets stabbed in the gut. Jesse comes down, checks on Dutch, is horrified to discover that he is dead. As if she's personally offended. You killed him. And it's like, yeah, that's what happens when you have a knife fight. Yeah, sometimes people die. So anyhow, they they peace out, and that's the end of the flashback. And so you're like, wow, this guy is super lying to Magnum. Oh, that's why he wants to know if Diane's still alive, because of course Diane would know that he killed someone. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't look good on your record. No, no. Of course, he doesn't tell this to Magnum. No, that would be helpful. Magnum does some more thinking back at the King Kamehameha Club. I feel it's just that the screenwriters wanted him to go somewhere, but they didn't want him to be at the Robert Masters estate again. And at least the King Kamehameha Club, you have something interesting to shoot. Well, also we get this nice little character interaction with Rick being like, oh crap, Higgins is coming, put the beer away. You know, if he sees you in here, you know, he'll do the whole thing again. And Magnum's like, no, 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 he won't. It's fine. And Rick's like, are you joking me? I bet you 50 bucks. 
And he he pulls it out and slams it on the bar. He's like, 50 bucks, he's going to come in here and be like, I don't care if Robin Masters, blah, 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 but you're, you know, out of here, whatever. 50 bucks right now. And Magnum just stares dead at the camera for like three solid seconds <laughs> with just this look of like, do I do this? Yeah, I do this. Yeah, and he says, no, he won't. And Rick's like, are you nuts? So Higgins walks up and says, good afternoon, Magnum. How's the case going? Can I be of any more assistance? And Rick and Moki are horrified. Dumbfounded. <laughs> Baffled. Very confused. And uh, they exchange pleasantries and, no, no, great. All right, well, I'll be on my way. Be sure to put Magnum's beer on my tab. To which Moki says, I always do. <laughs> and <laughs> Higgins bristles a little bit there. Yeah, but, there's a, a brief flash of anger, but then he just goes on his way. Yeah. And Rick looks like he's seen a ghost. He's like, what is going on? <laughs> Magnum gets up to leave, and Rick has no recourse but to lash out at Moki and just go, get that guy over there a drink. Yeah. Last week, I complained about the terrible, terrible subplot, sort of the B-plot involving Magnum and Higgins. This is a fantastic B-plot involving Magnum and Higgins because they are both acting realistically as they would normally do in these situations. I mean, I guess it's a little ridiculous that Higgins is that motivated, but you just get the idea that he takes it very seriously and he thinks Magnum is a bridge pro. So, But anyhow, it's funny. Rick, it's, did, it's realistic. It's well-scripted. Can I interrupt you again, Graham? Rick did have additional information for Magnum, which is the pianist from this nightclub slash brothel, goes by the name of Tickler, uh, is still around and operating in a hotel lobby and sends Magnum over there. Who should be playing Tickler? But well, you want to talk about working character actors. Mm. Scatman Crothers. I will give you a brief rundown of Scatman Crothers, but... I want to recommend that you go and look for a YouTube series called No Small Parts by Brandon Hardesty. It's a series that he's uh, recently launched a Patreon for, actually. And it's for sort of little mini biographies of, you know... Working character actors. Working character actors. He's done one on uh, Anne Ramsey and Warwick Davis. And the most recent episode is on Scatman Crothers. And it's a really, really interesting episode. It's yeah. about... 25 minutes long, and it sort of chronicles his whole career, which started in terms of stage and screen in the 1950s when um, one of his first movie roles, there was still a guy in blackface in that movie. And um, I think most people, again, and they, they, I do recommend that you go watch this episode of No Small Parts because Scatman Crothers had a fascinating career, but most people know him in The Shining, where he plays the chef. Anyhow, it's ironic that this ha that Scatman Crothers is in this episode. I think this is the correct definition of irony. I can never be I sure. Think, I don't think so. I think it's coincidence. Yeah, it's okay. It's a coincidence. It is an interesting coincidence because we watched this episode of No Small Parts on Saturday. Graham, realizing this guy had had an extremely long career in all sorts of movies and TV roles, looked him up on IMDb, realized he'd been in an episode of Magnum, and I said, oh, I can't wait to get to that episode. We fired the episode up on Sunday night, and it was the Scatman Crothers episode. Yeah, that was just amazing coincidence. Because in, in no small part, he lists off, you know, a bunch of sort of one-off TV roles that Scatman Crothers had done over the years. And I was like, these are all sort of in the same... I bet he's been in an episode of Magnum. And I looked it up and I was like, yes, he totally has. Sweet. And it was literally the next episode on our list. It was just kind of funny. Isn't it ironic? In the Alanis Morissette sense. <laughs> Only in that sense specifically. I'm covering... Tickler, the character, tells Magnum that he remembers Diane and remembers when she died. And she, Magnum's like, oh, when well, she died? thank you. Oh, that's, oh, weird. 
something to do with Pearl Harbor, I think. No, no, she died in a car accident in nineteen in like like a couple years later. So that's too bad. And so Magnum leaves, but then immediately behind Magnum in the same bar, listening to Tickler is Miss Polly, who looks at Scatman, looks at his tip jar, gives him a very knowing glance, and puts a much larger bill in there than Magnum did. And Scatman, or Tickler, I guess, says to her, "You don't need to do that, Miss Polly. You've done enough over the years." So obviously. She's sort of taking care of people like Tickler and Maku, who used to work at the club, Mm. who presumably took care of her in less monetary ways when she was younger. Mm. I assume protecting her probably from... Bad clients and... The the wrath of Jesse. Yeah. It's notable that Scatman is playing the piano through this whole scene. Yeah, and I feel like he's actually doing it too. Yeah. He's a very accomplished musician. Watch No Small Parts. You'll learn all about him. Mm -hmm. Magnum leaves and is being tailed. And he doesn't notice that he's being tailed because he's baffled as to how a dead woman who went missing 40 years ago sent a telegram to Judge Kane. And also because he's giving Kiki a ride. That's he's the other extremely, reason. He's extremely focused on Kiki. Yeah, that's the other reason he's distracted. I will say again, this is a very pretty lady. But there's this big-ass black sedan following them around that at one point drives up beside them and starts shooting at them. Driving them off the road. Driving them off the road. Cut to after dark, and TC shows up to... Uh, pull them out of the ditch. Because Magnum's like, I can't get the car in reverse. I think there's something wrong with the clutch or something like that. And TC's like, all right, fine. And he's looking under the car and and uh, Magnum's like, I, it's, I'm so happy to have such good friends like you, TC, who won't like, who won't lie to me. And TC says, what? And say things like, you got a busted transmission? Yeah, exactly. Because they see a Ferrari owner and they think you're made of money. And TC's like, no, you have a busted transmission. Higgins is going to murder you. And Magnum's like, no, he won't. I like the the response to that specifically is Magnum says, they see a Ferrari owner and think you're made of money. And TC says, oh, so you call me because I know you're not. Yeah, I forgot about that. But so, yeah, there's been a problem. The Ferrari's transmission is busted. However, Kiki's been looking at that picture of Diane and says, you know, I think I do recognize her. Because Magnum was like, well, that was 40 years ago. So imagine her as an older woman now. And Kiki's like, I think I have seen a woman who basically looks like this girl's mother, so it must be her now. So let me tell you, and you cut to this big house Mm -hmm. where we see the Miss Polly, who we know is Diane at this point, hanging out, and she has a maid who I'm guessing is Kiki's mom Mm. because they look very similar, and I'm pretty sure that's how Kiki... Because it's never actually explained. How Kiki knows who Diane is, but it makes sense if her mother works with this lady, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So her, her maid comes in and says, there's a man at the door who says he's a friend of the governor's to see you. Miss Polly, Diane, is like, okay, well, let him in. And as she's waiting, she walks over to the mantelpiece where there's a picture of the what is presumed to be the now deceased former governor of Hawaii, a Mr. Polly, who Diane was married to, and she sort of says something to him. Yeah, I can't keep track of all your friends, but I'll keep entertaining them if you... So, you know, why not? And you're like, oh, okay. So she's... That's why she has the big-ass house, because she was married to the governor. All right, this all makes sense. Magnum walks in. She recognizes him from the thing and is like, okay, you know who I am. You know my past. What do you want? And if it better be less than 50 bucks, because for more than that, I just don't care anymore if people want to know about my past. Yeah, my husband's dead. My husband's dead. His political career wouldn't be threatened by it anymore. I'm just done pretending that my past never happened. And he's like, I don't want to blackmail you. Bobby hired me to find you. And she's like, Bobby died in the Pearl Harbor attack. And Magnum's like, what is going on? Because 
Bobby thinks Diane is missing, and Diane thinks Bobby is dead. And what is even? This at this point, this is when my theories for what was going on in the episode went completely out the tubes. Because what I had thought had happened is this seems like a very wealthy lady with a lot of connections. Uh-huh. So I thought what had happened is she had like you know gone back. And eventually become like the like the the brothel owner and like taken over for Jesse. And this is why she has all this money and like a chauffeur and stuff like that. And so she's just trying to watch out for herself because there's a lot of people who would try to blackmail her or something like that. Like she might have gone legitimate in the previous years. So I'm like, I was close on that, but I did not see this this wrench coming in the scenario. So I was like, all right, I have no literally no idea what's gonna happen next. Well, what happens next is that Rick is driving for some reason, Judge Kane to the airport while he writes a check for Magnum for $1,000 and says, Which well, might I'm... cover the transmission repair. Which might, yeah. And says, I'm sorry that you couldn't find her, but hopefully this will cover your expenses. Thank you for trying. I mean, that's $1,000 for a day's work. Yeah. They drive past the airport. And Kane's like, wait, wait, where are we going? Magnum says, well, Diane's not at the airport. And Kane's like, what? And we then... go to the memorial site for the USS Arizona. Which was, of course, one of the ships that was blown to oblivion in the Pearl Harbor attacks. I think the reason why Magnum is lying to Kane at this point, because he's very, very distrustful of Kane and who he is, because he knows Kane has been withholding information from him, right? Yeah, he outright confronted him at one point, and, and Kane's like, look, I've told you everything that you need to know to fix this, to, to, you know, to figure this out. Like, he's, he knows Kane is hiding something. And he knows that Diane doesn't know everything either. And so he's like, this is this is weird. There's something weird going on. Yeah. So we get to the USS Arizona memorial site. And we hear a tour going on in the background. It's, it's, it's a shot, actually, of the memorial wall mm-hmm. of everyone who died on the Arizona. And we hear a tour guide talking about how there's still bodies that were unable to be recovered in the hull of the Arizona, which is now sank below the memorial site, and the Navy considers these men to be buried at sea. And so you're sort of like, okay, so it's feasible that they wouldn't have recovered a body. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just a little, a little like that's just sort of like background noise in this opening shot. But I, but I like that. It's like, oh, that would explain why they didn't find a body, because there's like a hundred men that, whose bodies they never recovered from this boat. So it's like, okay, sure. We see Magnum and Kane looking at the model of the Arizona, and they talk a bit about Pearl Harbor, and then we get a flashback of the Pearl Harbor bombing attacks. Which is not necessarily a flashback from Magnum. It's a it's some movie footage. It is. From basically the definitive movie on the subject, the classic Torah, Torah, Torah. Oh, perfect. From 1970. I mean, if you're going to get movies from any, or if you're going to get movie footage from any movie about Pearl Harbor, why not Tora, Tora, Tora? However, why do they squish it? Because yeah, obviously... Why wouldn't you pan and scan? Okay, so here's the deal. Obviously, old TV is four by three. If you're watching Magnum on Netflix or a DVD, you'll see that there is like the big black bars at the side of your TV because TVs nowadays are not square, but they used to be square. But movies, however, have always been shot in like five by two or whatever the ratio is. Uh, 16 by nine, nine by six. There's a bunch of different... Movies have always been widescreen. Yeah, just say widescreen. There's a bunch of different aspect ratios. All right, so anyhow, so typically in the old days when they would put a movie on TV, they would use a technique called pan and scan because you couldn't fit the whole frame of the movie in the little square box of the TV. So they'd pan it back and forth depending what was on the screen and who was talking and stuff like that. And it's not a good solution, but it's a better solution than what they did in this episode of Magnum, which is just squish it to four by three so everything is weirdly stubby. Yeah, the like the planes look really short. And it looks the, awful. The the mushroom cloud explosions are like oblong, 
It's very strange. Oh, no, it's the worst. Yeah. Great footage, but yeah. Don't let this sully your opinion of Torah, Torah, Torah. But then we snap back to the present, enough to distract you from the terrible footage by hearing, Bobby? 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 And then Diane is there. And Bobby is there. And Diane says, I thought you were dead. And Bobby says, I thought you were gone. And what they, happened was this. Well, first they share an old person kiss. Yeah, first there are elder makeouts. <laughs> then they explain what happened. They were going to elope. They just stabbed this guy to death. Well, Bobby just stabbed the guy to death. Yeah, Diane was not complicit in that. And so the plan was Bobby put her on a boat to San Diego. He would sort out whatever he needed to do on the naval base, get out of that, skip out of town, join her in San Diego. She didn't want him to face the music alone, so she jumped back off the boat. Right, so she could, you know, lend her testimony or to whatever. Pearl Harbor attack happened. Like three hours later. And his boat sank, and he was listed on the list of casualties. But... He had gone off the naval base up a hill to watch her boat leave, because he's a hopeless romantic, it's very sweet, honestly. And her boat had just cleared the horizon when the attack happened. So he was nowhere near the naval base. So he thought she was on a boat that she was not. She thought he was on a boat that he was not. Two ships passing in the night. Not really. Because he knew that if they didn't recover a body, they would put him as missing in action. He got on a different boat to San Diego and just went, guess I'm not in the Navy anymore. So then but he, he went to San Diego, couldn't find her. Had nothing to do. Enrolled in the army. Because here's the deal. He's like, well, I murdered a man, but now I have a chance to get a new name and it'll be a very kind of no questions asked kind of era. So perfect. And so he ended up going through the army, getting going back to school on the GI Bill and then becoming a lawyer and a judge and all of this. And then she in Hawaii knew that he was dead and so went back to her life at the club and then eventually married the governor and took care, you know, used her position and wealth as governor to take care of her old friends from the from the club. And so Magnum is like, well, then who sent this telegram? And shows Diane the telegram. And she's like, I didn't send this. I had, I didn't even know he was alive. I mean, and that's fair. And then Bobby says, and interestingly, I just got another telegram today asking me to leave $50,000 at a phone booth. And Magnum's like, who, you, why didn't you tell me about that? And Kane's like, well, you, you couldn't find her, so I didn't think it mattered. I wasn't going to pay this. I'm just going to go back to Washington and decline the nomination and, you know, just move on with my shameful life. And Magnum's like, well, who else knew about this? I mean, it was like you and Jesse, and she's presumably dead. And like, who else knew? And, you know, like that you killed that guy. And Diane's like, oh, Dutch didn't die. I mean, and you know what? That's what I said when we were watching the flashback the first time. I'm like, that guy got stabbed like, like a couple inches to the right of the belly button. That's not a fatal stabbing point. That's not a knife to the heart point. That's a knife to the gut point. But you're like, wait, wait, wait. Dutch didn't die. That's the whole thing Kane was worried about. Yeah, so he didn't need to change his name and run away at all. Irony. Is that I, irony? Is uh, that ironic? Uh, probably not. We'll, Lennis we'll, Morset. We'll let the forum argue about it. It's impossible to use the word irony online. Without, I don't. Without people taking issue with your usage of it. I don't even know the true usage anymore. Anyhow. Apparently Dutch had come to Diane years ago and was broke and wanted help and she was like well i guess you know we did almost kill you so we kind of owe you that he's her chauffeur now the pieces fall together the guy driving the big comical black sedan that almost drove magnum off the road and shot at him because here's the deal here's what happened dutch is obviously the guy who blackmailed bobby he figured that bobby would be ashamed 
of his previous life. The fact that he married a prostitute and that he uh, almost killed a guy, right? And that would put his or his uh, Supreme Court nomination in jeopardy. But when he realizes that Bobby has hired Magnum to ta track down Diane, the whole ruse is at risk of coming apart. Because if Magnum finds Diane, Diane will say, I don't know what's going on. And obviously everything will seem fine because they will reconcile. And then he doesn't get his $50,000. It's a house of cards. Even Magnum says, this is like a Robin Masters novel. Yeah. It's the second time in the episode that he's actually equated these events to a, specifically a bad Robin Masters novel. I feel that perhaps Magnum does not hold Robin Masters novels in the same high esteem many other people do. <laughs> I think you're right. They take the little tour shuttle back from the Arizona Memorial, and Magnum is really worried because Rick is hanging out with the chauffeur, and he doesn't want Rick to get bored and start talking, which of course Rick does. And then Magnum jumps off the boat and starts running towards the... Yeah, he like climbs out on like... The prow? Yeah. I don't think they let, let you do that nowadays. Leaps off onto the dock, tears off towards the parking lot. So Dutch piles in the car and peels out of the parking lot. And then uh, Magnum and Rick jump in their big black sedan and chase him down the road where he decides to try and evade them by driving directly through the barricade and onto Pearl Harbor Naval Base. Which is a poor choice. Yeah, if you're going to try and run away from someone, driving onto a military base... It seems like a bad idea. I feel like better choices have been made in the history of car chases. <laughs> the history of man. <laughs> um, and so the military police shut this down pretty quick. Yeah, there's a there's a brief car chase between one big black sedan being driven by Dutch, one big black sedan being driven by Magnum and Rick, and then a little Jeep with some MPs in it that ends, of course, with everything stopping. Yeah, Magnum and Rick are not super concerned. They're like, what are they going to do, make us re-up? Meh. Right, because, of course, they're all ex-Navy people. So everything's good. And then we cut to the Robin's Nest, where Higgins is shuffling up the cards for Bridge and nervously saying, I'm sure he'll be here any moment. And indeed he is. Magnum eventually does make it to the Bridge game, where his fellow players, of course, are Higgins and Mrs. Blackwood, and he's sorry to hear about her husband, and Mrs. Polly, who Higgins is astonished to discover Magnum knows. Magnum says, "What's where's, where's Mr. Kane? And she says, oh, well, he's gone back to Washington to decline the nomination so he can come back to Honolulu and live with me. Yay! Yay. So it all works out fine. Love flourishes after all of these years. Everything is fine and nothing goes wrong. Well, except... Nothing goes wrong. Well, except... Nothing <laughs> goes wrong. So way back at the beginning of the episode when Higgins says, are you the T-Magnum from the American bridge team of 1972? Magnum doesn't say yes or no. He says, what do you want? As Higgins is starting to shuffle up the cards, looking very happy, Magnum's like, uh, Higgins, there's a, Higgins, there's a couple of things we need to get straight here before we start. Higgins says, well, of course, we need to list what conventions we're using. And then he lists off this, I can only say, pile of jargon that Graham and I rewatched this part at least 10 to 15 times trying to get all the phrases, but he says them so quickly they are impossible to discern. But here's what we're able to make out. Kennedy B, Single Swiss, Jacoby Transfer, Michaels Cubid, Gerber Blackwood, August Response for Two, and Dobby. There are other phrases in there, and I don't know what they are, but they're some all, of those are real bridge terms. They're all bridge conventions, which is apparently... It has, it has to do with, like, the bidding and stuff. It's their strategies or move sets or... I, I don't know. Bridge is a very complicated I really game. tried to look up bridge to summarize it for this episode, but it's so complicated. Jacoby transfer, I think, is my favorite. 
of the names that he uses. Yeah. I mean, Cubit is pretty good. Yeah. So Magnum's like, yeah, I never said I was on the team. And Higgins is mad. Higgins just starts standing up in anger, and then it cuts to the credits. <laughs> yeah. Higgins is furious. Uh, Mrs. Is a- Polly, for her part, is laughing a lot. This was a super fun episode. This is a great episode. I really enjoyed it. I, I totally didn't see how it was going to come together. And it's one of those things that it's, there's not like a twist, but when you sort of finally see how everything falls together, this like, I thought you were dead, you thought I was missing, that whole thing. I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And the flashbacks with the the actors and their acting children uh, was a really cool technique. I mean, it's good that a really good episode came after the really bad episode of last week. (laughs) This is no never again, never again, never again, never again. It's probably the best episode we've watched this season, but I'd say this is a solid second place. What's the rating for this on the Magnum Mania website? This is rated an 8.8. Well, I don't know about an 8.8, but... I am super looking forward to the next episode, though. What's that? The Curse of the King Kamehameha Club. Oh, that sounds cheesy. (laughs) I mean, yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, we'll see. Thank you so much for listening, and our ability to continue to bring you this podcast is brought to you by you, the listeners, who support our work on patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Not just this podcast, but all the other podcasts and video content and live streaming that we do. We produce a lot of stuff because we like to entertain you. And mm-hmm. we, we really appreciate your ongoing support. And we like Magnum. Yeah, it's a good show. And <laughs> if you is. like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can comment on it on our forums. And if you really like this podcast, you can do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah. That'll help us out a lot. We'll get other people to see it. There's a couple of reviews that have come in already. And we thank you so much for your support. To quote YouTubers, please remember to like, rate, and subscribe. Uh, when you say it that way. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. We need a sign-off for this week, Graham. Isn't it ironic? No. Don't you think? I mean, maybe. No. If I check a dictionary, I don't know the real definition in this... Can't we just flash back 40 years? Neither of us are alive. I know. Then we won't have to listen to you singing ironic. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think?